Father, uh, we acknowledge that we have lived our entire life uh, in your goodness and kindness to us. Uh, even before you drew us to yourself, uh, you treated us with great, great kindness and faithfulness and unfailing love. Uh, we love you and we thank you for thinking of us uh, long before we even had a thought of you. Thank you. I uh, pray your spirit would take these words uh, that you so faithfully had recorded uh, and teach them to us that we might learn them and that we might learn about you more and more uh, and fall more in love with you and worship you more fully and accurately. And we love you and say those things um, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Hmm, why is that? Oh, okay, so some of you are almost old enough to remember this. Um, gosh, but Ben talked about it this morning too. Okay, well, so in the 80s, some of you can just about remember that. You might have been born in 1980, but by the end of the 80s, you can walk with me here. Uh, Stephen Covey. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and one of the things, if you went to the seminar, you read the book, it was about creating your own personal mission statement. Some of you remember that. Some of you did that. Some of you even have your mission statement. Some of you might even still be following your mission statement that you developed during that time if you did that. Uh, great. That's a fantastic thing. I still have mine, and I'm still walking in step with that mission. So I, I get it. I'm, I'm a child of that. I'm a product of that. Uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things about the book of Numbers, um, and if you'll, if you'll let me go on one, two more books, so the Pentateuch is the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's next? Joshua. This is often called the Hexateuch. Penta 5, Hexa 6. So the Hexateuch includes Joshua. So if you look at the Hexateuch, <laughs> try to use that in a sentence this coming week. If you look at the Hexateuch and you think about this idea of living on mission, then you can begin asking yourselves, uh, Genesis and Exodus advance the story, okay? The, the Old Testament is telling a story, right? It eventually leads to Jesus, and then there's a little short story of the New Testament, and then, okay? So the Bible is telling a story. That doesn't mean it's false, it just means it's a story, right? There's a storyline to it. Genesis and Exodus advance the story. It started at creation, started with... Yeah, yeah, Adam and Eve, yeah, yeah. And then who's key figure? Abraham, okay, chapter 12 of Genesis. Remember, you can't forget anything. You never know when there's going to be a pop quiz. Starts with Abraham. He receives a promise that turns into a covenant, that turns into a people. And what are they promised? Land, seed, and blessing. Okay, they go to Israel. What starts happening? They start multiplying. So, 
kind of the seed thing is already happening. What are they looking forward to? Land. Where does God intend to take them? You know this. The promised land. Well, when do they get there? In Joshua, in the Hexateuch. Okay? So if you look at the first six books of the Old Testament, there's a story that's going to start in Genesis with a promise, and it's going to end in Joshua with the division of the land, and every tribe gets a portion of land. Remember all this? You remember this from Sunday school days? Good. So the Hexateuch is telling a story. Genesis and Exodus advance the story. Leviticus doesn't advance the story. It just tells us, how do I approach and live with this God who's come to dwell with us in Exodus chapter 40, thank you, 40, Exodus chapter 40, God comes and dwells with His people. How do I live with this holy God? How do I walk with Him? So the book of Leviticus answers those questions. It doesn't advance the story, it fills us in on some details. Now, you keep moving through the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is going to advance the story. Deuteronomy doesn't advance the story, it's just the re-giving of the covenant to the second generation of Israelites. Why did he have to give it to the second generation? Oh, that's right, because the first generation died out in the desert. Numbers is the story of the first generation transitioning to the second generation. So Deuteronomy, they get the covenant reiterated to them. By the time that we get to Joshua, story moving forward again, they get to the promised land, they cross the Jordan River, the land is divided, and they start living in the promised land, right? So the Hexateuch is key for this whole story. It gets Israel as a people it gives them the constitution as a nation, which is the Mosaic Covenant, right? Gives them their land. They've got seed, and they're going to need to get, then they've got to figure out, okay, now how do I get blessings? Well, those are coming from the Mosaic Covenant. And so they've got everything they need now. So if you are uh, in this from, uh, you're looking at the story you see that in Genesis and Exodus, there is an inheritance promised to Israel. Right? Okay? In Joshua, that inheritance is possessed. In Numbers, there is the testing of their faith. In Genesis and Exodus, Egypt is where my perceived security is which is why Dathan and all those other people keep wanting to get everybody back together and go back to Egypt. Didn't we have leeks and melons every night? Yeah, and you had to make bricks without straw. But it's the place where you're, you have perceived security. We should go back there. Under Joshua, Canaan... The promised land is where I experience God's best. If you're a storyteller, which God is, you've set up a great story. 
I've promised you an inheritance. You're not going to realize it till over here. Okay? I promised it to you. You're going to possess it over here. And over here is a place you used to live. You got kind of comfortable there even though you hated it. But I got you out of that. I liberated you. I made you free. Without something, it's impossible to please God. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What do I have to do? Exercise faith. So the first generation, they've seen God deliver them out of Egypt. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen God provide manna from heaven. They've seen all of this stuff, and God says, here we go. We're going to experience my best in the promised land. What is he going to take me through? A wilderness of unbelief and disobedience. Now, I don't have to be on the unbelief and disobedience side, as our two heroes, Joshua and Caleb, are. But the whole rest of the first generation, as we read through the book of Numbers, is going to struggle between where my perceived security is and what God has told me my best is. If you got to hear Ben's sermon this morning, he was talking about the same thing. I have something better for you. God is saying, I have something better for you over here in Canaan. We got to walk through this, though, to get it, okay? Here we go. And so he gives the continuation of the story from Exodus. God has come to live with his people. How do I live with this holy God? How do I approach this holy God? Question, answer, question, answer. Leviticus. What's ready to happen? Get ready to go. Here we go. To the promised land. Great story. Wonderful. Uh, you think there's nothing but um, roses and bonbons for these people. God's living in their midst. They can't lose. But he says, I want you to live by faith. And you got to walk with me and learn to walk with me. And so this is the, the whole big idea of numbers is the people have to learn to follow God. If you've read the book of Numbers before, you know how it ends. If you haven't, sorry for the spoiler, but now when you go read it, you go, okay, this is kind of starting to make sense. I want it to make sense to you. So this is God's will and God's mission for Israel. He made them some promises, and he wants to realize them. He wants the people to realize them, but they're going to have to walk with him through, through this desert in faith to get there. That's the story of the book of Numbers. And so if I were an Israelite and God were talking to me and he asked me the seven habits of highly effective people and he told me to write my personal mission statement as an Israelite, this is what he would have wanted me to write for my mission statement if I were an Israelite. Press into my inheritance. I've promised it to you. It's sitting there for you. I have something better for you. Come on. And you would say, here we go. Book of Numbers, here we go. 
my mission statement, if I were an Israelite, press into my inheritance. Israelite, this was the mission statement for your life. One word I put on the book of Numbers, and that is obedience. What they've got to learn, what Israel has to learn, is to follow God. And he has a great plan set up for them how to do that. All they have to do, all they have to do is obey God and follow him. That's all they have to do. Huh. Don't start thinking ahead. That's all we have to do too. But let's not go there yet. The book of Numbers, the book of obedience. Who wrote it? Likely Moses wrote it around 1406 B.C. I think he probably compiled the entire Pentateuch. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that he's on the plains of Moab. Remember, Moses doesn't get to go over, but you're, you're ready for the second generation of Israel to go across the Jordan, and they're saying, how did we get here? And Moses has written down the five books that we call the Pentateuch, and I think he's compiling that in its, in its basically final form right then and there. So that's about 1406 B.C. Where is he doing that? On the plains of Moab. Why is he doing it? To exhort Israel's second generation not to repeat the grave error of the faithlessness of their fathers, but instead to walk by faith in God's Word and intentionally press into their promised inheritance of Canaan. That's why Moses is writing these things down. So the second generation doesn't lose what the first generation lost. Now, in my mind, there's an implied question that comes up in the book of Numbers. And so if I look at this from God's point of view, there's obviously more to being rescued from Egypt than just being counted among the number of the redeemed. Right? There's obviously something more. One, he already told them there's something more, but it's obvious there's something more than just being counted among the number who left Egypt. There's fulfilling God's expectation of being one of those on whom he can count to pursue his will and his mission in the world. If I were God, asking Israel the question, are you one on whom I can count to press into my mission for your generation? Israel, are you one of those one by one on whom I can count? I need to know who I can count on. So God's asking them again. Are you ready to press into my inheritance for you? He wants them to press in. We'll find out if they do. 
Well, the first thing that happened, and I have to tell you a little bit of something here, uh, if you look at page four, it might say page five on your handout, but um, you know the computer program, garbage in, garbage out. If um, somebody doesn't tell their wife uh, what page it's actually on, then sometimes there can be mistakes made that are not her fault, but are maybe the um, other party's fault. All right, I was trying to spare you. It's on page four. This gives you uh, the year, and this is coming from a book called A Survey of the Old Testament by Hill and Walton. Um, it's a great book. Uh, but there's a uh, year and month and day chart, and you can see, scan all the way down until you see numbers 7, 1 through 3. See that? Offerings for the altar begin. Let your eyes drop a little bit further. Offerings for altar are completed. Levites are appointed. You'll notice that chapters 1 through 9 in Numbers, actually 7 through 9 occur chronologically before 1 through 6. You probably caught that as you were reading your, the book of Numbers. You went, I think this is out of sequence. And you were right. So we're actually going to start by looking chronologically. So we're going to start with Numbers 7. We're going to do 7, 8, and 9. And then we'll go back and pick up 1 through 6 because we're going to keep it chronological, okay? And so this chart will help you in the future for reference when you start thinking, now what was the order of that again? So number seven, actually chronologically, is the next thing that happens after God comes and dwells with His people in Exodus chapter 40, okay? So number seven... God's deliverance and presence prompts their wholehearted devotion. So here's how Israel responds to God's provisions in, now He's coming to dwell with His people, and here's how they respond to His presence and provision among them. Chapter 7, if I summarize, they joyfully and generously give God their best. They're just giving they're so overwhelmed with God's generosity, God's presence, that they give generously. Uh, chapter 8, they begin walking in the light as He is in the light. This was the, uh, chapter 8 was about the lamps, or, uh, the, the lamp in the uh, tabernacle. Remember, and it goes into some detail about the lamps, and they're supposed to keep the lamps going and all this kind of thing. And then chapter 8, also they see themselves as His servants, and that shows up a number of times in chapter um, 8. Chapter 9, they have the second Passover. The first Passover was in Egypt. So a year later, we're now one year past the original Passover. And so they have a second Passover. And they have uh, this Passover, they celebrate this Passover with the blessing 
of being freed men and women who have come at God's hand, sovereign hand, out of Egypt. And they learn this, let me summarize then these chapters, the lesson they're learning in chapters 7, 8, and 9 is who you worship determines how you walk. Who you worship determines how you walk. If your God were mean and angry and vengeful and kept uh, checklists, how would you walk? Uh, yeah, fear and trembling, at least with a lot of fear. You're walking on the edge of a razor blade. You're just waiting to mess up. And then whack! Here comes God! Whack! I don't know the real percentage, and neither do you. But I'll bet even in this room, at one time of your life, your Christian life, some of you believe that very same thing. That my job was to toe the line and keep walking on the straight and narrow. Because if I didn't, God's going to show up and straighten me out. Who I worship determines how I walk. One of the reasons I keep trying to express to you what the Scriptures teach about God is the better you understand Him, the better our walks will be in reflecting Him and how He's made us in Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, to walk. I hope that makes sense to you. So who you worship, big lesson from the Old Testament. Who you worship determines how you walk. And you say, whoa, that's crazy. Okay, you're going to remember this when we get to Baal worship. Remember Baal? Yeah? If you've been through this class before, you remember Baal. Baal, um, uh, they've got some, um, he's an interesting God. Um, we'll get into it later. But he is a very um, perverted God. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> and he wants, if he's a perverted God, then how does he want you to walk in a perverted fashion? So who you worship determines how you walk. This is a huge principle that's being taught here in chapters 7, 8, and 9 of Numbers. Who had these people, whether they had actually worshipped them or not, hard to tell, but they had been just a year ago worshipping all of the so-called gods of Egypt. They hadn't necessarily been worshipping Yahweh or just Yahweh alone, right? So what does God have to do? He has to teach them who He is so that they'll walk in accordance with who He is. Okay. I think I beat this one into the ground. Hopefully, you're, you're understanding, you're tracking with me. All right, so 7, 8, and 9 chronologically come first. Big idea, who you worship determines how you walk. Their hearts right now, out of the chute, their hearts were devoted to Yahweh. So now we go back to chapter 1. And so chapters 1 through 4 
you see all these things. What is he, what's he doing? You got to count people, and then you got to count their offerings, and, and then everybody's got a place, they got a camp, and he's got all these things, right? And you go, oh my goodness, what is he doing? His word, he's using his word to order their lives. Don't miss what God is doing. Who you worship determines how you walk. So he says, let my word order your life. And you've heard it. Paul even pulls the same principle in the New Testament. He says, for instance, in worship, everything is done decently and in order. Who is the little g God of confusion? The Satan. Not God. God is not the author of confusion or chaos. He is the God of order. He wants his word to order their lives. And so he begins giving them down to some details, some instructions. First, in chapter 1, first four verses, he says, A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of that year, he said, from the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clan. The what? The what? The warriors. Hmm. List all men 20 years old or older who are able to go to war. What? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> it's a year after we left Egypt. What do you mean we're going to war? What's this warrior stuff? You and Aaron must register the troops, <laughs> and you will be assisted by one family leader from each tribe. God lays out his mission and his expectation at the beginning of the book. There is territory to gain, we know that, and an enemy to fight. You will take your place and serve. If you're mine, meaning God's, I'll be able to count on you for battle. So what does he do? He counts all the men. <laughs> there's no neutrality in this battle. And there's no negotiating God's will. The only thing I can do is ignore it or obey it. Those are my only two options. It's like when your kids are little. You say, now you can choose to obey or you can choose to not obey. Those are your choices. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no more choices than that? Nope, those are the only two. <laughs> Does he say, what if you don't want to go? I didn't sign up for this when you got me out of Egypt. <laughs> Sorry. Is there a line forming over here for people who didn't know what they were signing up for? No. You're redeemed from Egypt. You are now a warrior. There's territory to gain and an enemy to fight. There's no neutrality in this battle. And there's no negotiating God's will. You'll either ignore it or obey it. 
It's funny. You know, you fast forward to the New Testament. I know you don't like to do that. Neither do I, really. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go and make disciples, but only if you feel like it. The king is calling his servants to battle. And again, there is no neutrality. In this world, you are either with God or you are against him. Somebody said that. I think his name was Jesus. There's only two sides. And you say, woohoo, I'm on the good side, I'm on the winning side. What's expected of you? There's no neutrality. Wow! <laughs> Wait a minute, I don't like to study the Old Testament anymore. I'm not coming back. That's fine. It's hard. But this is what there is so much similarity, so many pictures in the Old Testament that are drawn on for the New Testament. Anyway, this is God's mission and His expectations, and so the men are counted uh, let's see. The Levites, however, are exempted. Uh, the clergy and laity ministering together to protect and uphold God's worship and God's mission. So he gets the priests and the Levites together, uh, and their charge is the tabernacle. Why? It's like, why do they get a free pass? Because the quality of Israel's relationship with God, their worship, will determine their success in battle or warfare. So who you worship determines how you walk, and how you worship determines how you'll do in warfare. You're beginning to get the idea that worship is kind of central. We keep coming back to this idea of worship. And if it was that important for people who did not yet know Jesus Christ... How much more elevated should worship be in our lives who know more, who have experienced more, who have the indwelling Spirit of God? Again, how I worship is going to determine my success in warfare. So the God puts out, then he starts ordering, where are they going to camp? And so he sets out where each tribe is going to go in chapter 2. So I think I have a picture in chapter 2. The tabernacle and God's presence were the most important things in the camp. Because he is to be at the heart of their lives and world. So the tabernacle is in the middle and the camp then is arranged around him. He assigns them each a position and a place. God appointed each tribe to its place. And then God instructed them how to walk in a manner that pleased him. And that's the rest of chapter 2. And so here's a picture. So north, so remember east, 
the, the tabernacle, the gate of the, uh, of the, of the uh, um, tabernacle grounds opens to the east. And so east is this way. Who's heading, who's heading the column as they march? Judah, the line of kings. And they march in this order, and in the middle come all the Levites carrying all the stuff. The priests are carrying the furniture. Remember, they get carts and stuff to help them with some of the stuff, but, um, but the, um, the priests have to carry the other, the most important parts, on their shoulders. They don't get any carts. They just got to carry it. So God's Word continues to order their life. Uh, he's at the center. He's, again, He's trying to teach them who He is so that they will walk accordingly. And so He's putting Himself at the center of their whole life and existence. Don't just think, wow, that's, that's so random what God does. He just orders the lines these people up. And he probably drew names out of a hat. He, he probably didn't. <laughs> he probably had an idea. And he puts himself at the center so that they would be reminded, just like with the dietary laws, they're reminded just because of their physical positions in the camp, God is most important and he's right here in the heart of the camp. So, his word continues to order their lives. He assigns the priests some things. Then he assigns the Levites some things. Uh, the Gershonites had all the soft stuff. Uh, the Kohathites had the holy things. And the Merarites had the hardware. They had all the heavy stuff. But he gives everybody an assignment. This is what you're going to carry. At the end of chapter 4, the census is complete, and every male over 20 is expected to be on mission with a role and a contribution toward the whole. So the last thing that he does is he addresses purity. So God's deliverance and presence have prompted their wholehearted devotion and their generosity. His Word has ordered and guided their daily walk, and now His presence and mission demand holy and separated lives. So there can be no hidden sin on this mission, but only holiness and a consecrated physical lifestyle. No hidden sin only holiness and a consecrated physical lifestyle. So they needed to walk in purity. It's really a holistic life on mission. Their hearts were devoted to God because He had loved them first and redeemed them from Egypt. They loved Him most and put Him first in their lives. They had a walk that was now guided and ordered by His Word. God's Word and nothing else was to guide and order their walk of faith to the promised land. They needed nothing else but His Word. And they were ready to lead holy and pure lives. 
There was to be no hidden sin on this mission, but rather holiness and a consecrated lifestyle. We'll get to some application later, but isn't this kind of interesting? As I'm listening to Ben's sermon this morning, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh Lord, you want me to hear this twice. <laughs> you want me to hear it in a sermon, and then you want me to stand up here and do this. Their hearts are devoted to God. They have a walk that's guided and ordered by… This is New Testament. Have you, is, that, is that penetrating? But this isn't the New Testament. This is the Old Testament, right? All these books that are old and they don't really have anything to say to us today, they just prop up the New Testament so it's closer to a… as we read… God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unbelievable. He's asking the same things of His people then and now, and they are ready to lead holy and pure lives. No hidden sin, but holiness and a consecrated lifestyle. They knew what God wanted. They were prepared and ready. And yet, Numbers is a story of the struggle of real people, redeemed people with divided hearts who still look back, resisting God as they hunger for and nurture tender thoughts of Egypt, who look around and complain who look within and make satisfying their own desires one of their primary aims, who don't cry out in confession until they first cried out in pain. This is the book of Numbers. They know what God wants. That's not a problem. The problem is their people. It's a story of the struggle of real people. It's a story of a journey that should have led them from bondage to freedom, fulfillment, and fruitfulness, that eventually did lead them from living to follow self to living to follow God, where giants were to be confronted and walled cities were to be overthrown but personal weaknesses seemed larger than even God. It's a story of choices. Walking by sight that leads to fear, disobedience, discipline, and maybe even disaster. Or walking by faith that leads to obedience, blessing, and progress. Ultimately, the choice, can God really be trusted in this situation. It's a story of waste and wandering, where potential conquerors become wanderers, where they remain in between in no man's land, and they fell short of all God had purposed for them in their lives and in their generation.
It's a story of learning from past failures. It's a story of God's gracious second chances. And it's a reminder that neither great intentions nor great beginnings guarantee great endings. Numbers is a warning to God's people that unbelief and disobedience can cause us, any of us, or all of us, to fall short of all God has for us in our generation. So what does God expect from us? Well, from His point of view, there's obviously more to being rescued from Egypt or sin than just being counted among the number of the redeemed. There's fulfilling His expectation of being one of those on whom He can count to pursue His purposes and His mission today. Christian, can God count on you to press into His mission for your generation? Christian, perhaps your mission statement needs to also be press into my inheritance. Is that the mission statement for your life? To press into your inheritance. Not an inheritance from your parents, loved ones. An inheritance from God that He has given to you to press into. I don't believe there's any neutrality or negotiation in this, just like back then. So, Bill, what is our promised land? Well, first, our promised land is Jesus Christ. Ben talked this morning about the fruit of the Spirit. That's Jesus' character. What is the song that George Beverly Shea, some of you again might just be old enough to remember that song, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. Remember that song? You ever sing that song? To yourself? <laughs> I can't sing, so I'm not allowed to say it out loud. <laughs> I don't know the right notes. Do <laughs> you sing that song and do you reflect on that song? Is that true of your life right now? Is that true of my life right now? What if you substitute, I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands? Uh, I'd rather have Jesus than security. And then you can define security, what that means to you. You can fill in your own blanks. I'd rather have Jesus than fill in that blank. 
How about Jesus' character? That's definitely part of our promised land. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do I have those in abundance? Especially that fourth one? Love, joy, peace, patience. How about joy? How many people that you work with or that you're around a fair bit would say you are joyful? Very interesting. Jerome Tang, the coach for the Kansas State Wildcats, uh, they did, they, that team played today in the tournament. And they did one of those little um, human interest stories on, on Jerome Tang. And they said, um, what are the three most important things to you? First thing out of his mouth, my Bible. <laughs> Jerome Tang, don't bet against the Kansas State Wildcats. <laughs> Jerome Tang says, the most important thing to me is my Bible. which is a pretty bold statement in a human interest story in a very secular time. I thought that was really, really bold. What struck me was what the announce, the, you know, they're not announcers, what are they? Analyst people? And after they watched this little clip, and evidently several of them were in on the interview, they all said, did you just, you could not get away from that guy's joy. <laughs> They're with this guy for 30 minutes, and they walk away going, Phew. now they didn't say, I don't know what he has and I want it, <laughs> but they all went, hey, have you run across as joyful a person as that? Now, I don't know if Jerome Tang is known for his joy, but he sure was in that little segment. Are we known for our joy? I'm not. Just a few years ago, I'm walking through the great room, and I was thinking about something, probably, hopefully, and a deacon walks up next to me and says, hi, Bill. I said, hi, you know, to the person. He says, um, are, you, are you thinking about something? I said, yeah, I'm thinking about something. He goes, yeah, uh, right now, because um, the other deacon sent me over here uh, to say, you're looking pretty scary right now, and if this is really a good day, uh, we need to see it on your face. Oh, what? <laughs> I guess I need to do my thinking in my office. <laughs> Are you known for your joy? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Are you, are you known for any of these things? If I would ask three or four of your friends at random, not ones you picked because I think you'd stack the deck. Yeah, I know you. I know what you would do. Our first promised land is Jesus himself. 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything. That's where we want to be. Our promised land is Jesus' character. Our promised land, as we've talked before, is Jesus' inheritance for us, already laid up for us in heaven, Ephesians 1.3. You've already been blessed in the heavenly realms with every… Well, if you knew Greek, you know what it would say? It would say every. That was a joke. Every, not almost every, not most, not select, every spiritual blessing is already laid up for you in heaven, courtesy of the Lord Jesus. It's in your bank account. Write a check on it. He'll cash it. I have that inheritance, but I also have a role of service for each one of us, already planned out in advance for us to walk in it, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, 2, 8 through 10. You've been saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Otherwise, somebody would boast. First would be me. But you've been created to do good works or to, it actually says walk in, walk in these, walk is my masterpiece, is what it says. Walk is my masterpiece. Do what I've given you to do. Well, what is that? Everyone wants to know. What is that, Bill? Well, start with these first three bullets and work your way down. <laughs> Here's the ones I know for sure. Jesus, is He your greatest inheritance and treasure? If He isn't, mm, I'm not sure you're ready for bullet four. <laughs> you got to begin at the beginning. Is Jesus your key and chief and priority inheritance and in your walk, your relationship with Him? His character, absolutely no question about that. Each one of us have part of that inheritance. All of us have a part in bullet number three, already laid up for us there. What is your particular area of or role of service? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure if you start asking, God will begin telling. Our promised land is to become and possess through obedience and faith what He's already promised and given to each one of us. He's not going, oh, Bill, oh, gosh, how'd you get in here? What am I going to do with you? What kind of inheritance can I give you? Mm. Mm. No. <laughs> he created me for something. And what do I need to do? I need to keep asking and keep pressing into it. I need to press into my inheritance. It's there for me. And if I don't know what bullet number four is, I can definitely spend the rest of my life working on bullets one, two, and three, and I bet he'll show me bullet four on the way. Is this not what you want? Is to become and possess through obedience and faith what he's already promised and given to each one of us? 
each one of you to me? Is that a prayer that you could pray this week? What are the essentials we're going to need for the journey? A heart devoted to God and His worship. What's competing for the allegiance of your heart? Are there distractions? The answer to that is yes. You just need to list what they are. Do you have a walk guided and ordered by His Word? Do you have other counselors? If so, who? One of my chiefest counselors is myself, listening to myself. You know what I mean? You all don't do that, so I'll tell you what a sinner does. This is what a sinner does. He listens to himself rather than to God's Word. As Ben encouraged us this morning and exhorted us, how often are you in His Word? How about a holy and pure physical lifestyle? Is there hidden sin in your life? Are you leading a consecrated lifestyle? I'm pretty sure if these three big bullets are true, God will continue to show you what He has for you. And many of you have already found that, and you're working in it. And I say, keep going. God's expectation of us, from God's point of view, there's more to being rescued from Egypt or sin than just being counted among the number of the redeemed. Filling a pew. There's fulfilling his expectation of being one of those on whom he can count to pursue his purposes and his mission today. God's will, God's mission for your life is to possess the land, in quotes, he's promised you and press into your inheritance. Press into your inheritance this week. For next time, read Numbers 10 through 14. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, you, uh, every time I, I go into your word and listen you amaze me. You are amazing. And I'm so thankful that you, for reasons known only to yourself, you, you called me and drew me to yourself and continue to show me the most beautiful person that my soul has ever seen. Would you continue to reveal your perfections and your beauty uh, to me and to my brothers and sisters? Uh, we continue to long for that uh, while we confess that there are distractions and just garbly gook that gets in our mind and in our way. Uh, would you continue to be at the center of our camp? be at the heart of our lives. We want our hearts to be devoted to you, ordered by your word, and to live pure and consecrated lives 
that we could be men and women on whom you could count to pursue your mission in our generation. We ask for it through the empowerment of your Spirit and according to your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.